0: Welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm your co-host Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my loyal co-host Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Very good, Mark. I'm very glad to hear that. Now, last week we had our aborted attempt at phase two. We're now well past that, but I think it's important to have a theme or a sort of, if not a late motif, some sort of overarching notion that ties together the sundry bits of our podcast. And I would like to propose a theme for this week's episode, and that is Mark is a blithering idiot. We're gonna have several. Opportunities it's canon. For- it's yeah, canon. Yeah, it is canon. I thought you would appreciate that. You you just seemed delighted at the introduction of the suggestion. <laughs> I would like to stress that this is my proposed theme for this week. Next week we can revisit the topic and determine whether I was or not. Say when
1: do we change my name to Mark?
0: <laughs> This will come up several times over the course of the episode, trust me, context clues will make it obvious, you're not going to be left scratching your head. So with that in mind, we're going to talk about games this week, we're going to talk about the games we played last week, we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter, and then we're going to talk about our feature game, our feature game is Whale Riders by Reiner Knizia, and I have no doubt that Walker will deploy his one joke about Reiner Knizia. That new
1: upcoming designer?
0: There it is, and we've done it! (laughs) Zinga! Cue the klaxons... Release the balloons, drop the confetti. So, Walker, what did you play last week?
1: Mark, we played a ton of games. We played a lot of week. games. It was great. You were lucky enough to get in your copy of Kemet Blood and Sand. Now, this is the second edition of Kemet that completely changed the color palette and a lot of the mi- minor tweaks and and shimmies in the rules, and I think it was all for the best. New components, new stuff. What'd you think?
0: Well, I was very nervous for a number of reasons. One of them was we tried the commit 1.5 adaptation, which was not too long ago, and we had very negative reactions to it. I I felt that it was a serious step back, and I was very concerned that Blood and Sand was going to continue continue in that vein. I also didn't like a lot of what I saw of the new components. And actually, when setting up the game for the first time and we put up the the new board for Blood and Sand, I'm like, this board looks hideous. I really didn't like the art direction. I will say that the board, with all the stuff on it, looks fine. Uh, the The original game was very visually attractive. I don't know if I'm just at the stage where it's different and so it's jarring. Uh, but where I'm currently sitting with Comet Blood and Sand is kind of where I'm sitting with Claustrophobia 1643, which is to say it's kept all the good bits from the expansions, integrated them in a, in a far more cohesive, coherent rule set. All the slight rule tweaks are for the better, but visually and in terms of components, it's mostly a lateral step. Not a step forward, not a step backward, but mostly just different. And so I miss some of the aspects of the old edition in terms of the the lovely red saturation that infused everything. It made, made everything look like there was the set, the setting sun and the quasi-photorealistic element of the board. Although, again, with stuff on it, it doesn't look so hideous. Anyway, but why don't you talk about some of the gameplay changes?
1: All the pyramids are in there now. You don't need the expansion for that. So they've integrated a, a the number of board, things from the board the board is the biggest change in the game the fact that uh there's no, you know, uh, two player, three player board or or, you know, five to six player board. It's all on the same board, so you're definitely always going to have that one temple where you can sacrifice guys for permanent victory points, uh, which is not, a
0: fairly big change. Not a temple walker. It's the sanctuary Sorry. for it's, all it's, gods, it's, it's, which the
1: sanctuary will always be in
0: play, which is important because some people get tripped up over that because there are various things that apply to temples that do not apply to the sanctuary for all gods. Yes, you're right. That is a significant difference. I'm a little bit disappointed that they didn't bother putting Back printing the board, now what you do is... You have these tiles that cover up various areas of the
1: board Would you need to do that. That was uh, a bit strange. And the DI cards are completely changed? Yes. Some of them are are very similar, but the deck is about three times the size as it was in the original game. It's a very thin deck. Now it's a very large deck, and the cards always seem useful, whereas before it was sort of your milling the deck trying to get useful ones.
0: Absolutely. There was this interplay in the original series of Kemet between winning a fight— And casualties that only rarely manifest itself, even with the introduction of the Death Hippo from... The first expansion, Tassati, which is a the strongest battle card of the game at plus five, but it costs you two of your own troops. I will note that in the English edition of Blood and Sand, they don't bother explaining how the Death Hippo works. We were only able to figure it out by inference based on the fact that we all received it in previous editions. Uh, in the French version of Blood and Sand, it's clearly explained. So yet, yet another great localization of a French product, Madigo. Well done. But anyhow, moving on. But in, in Blood and Sand, this interplay of having to make sure that you manage casualties, and guarding against casualties, and how many troops you can lose in the context of winning a fight, I felt much, much more present. And part of that, I think, is how they've just rebalanced all the Divine Intervention cards, and a lot of the power tiles. No huge earth-shaking changes, but everything just feels much more polished and tightly integrated. And as a result, I think this is the best way to play combat.
1: Yeah, they have a new symbology, which is the Black Heart, which is automatic damage that can't be blocked. They also have uh, these new Scarab tokens. So depending on how the fight goes, you're going to get... Either side's going to get a certain amount of Scarab Tokens, which you can cash in for troops or... Consolation back, prizes, Or prayer yeah. points yeah, it's or great. whatever you do. They also nicely changed all the wording of the colors of the game, which <laughs> is a nice touch, <laughs> considering yes. some of the, the word matchups that used to be. No more white power tiles.
0: We have diamond power tiles diamond instead. Power Step tiles, forward. Correct. And integrated now, there's a sort of... This, is, this was a Kickstarter bonus. A tray to display all the power tiles, because previously uh, we had to make recourse to what a variety of people did use coin sleeves you know coin collectors use these sleeves to store their coins they were the perfect size for commit power tiles uh so now out of the box if you have the kickstarter version it's all nicely organized and arrayed i am i i don't like the new figures very much i think that whoever is designing little plastic figures for troops if you're going to make them out of that material don't have anybody wield spears ever spears should be banned from plastic figures of the scale, just generally, it's it's asking for trouble. But I do like that they're bigger. I initially didn't like it, but it makes it easier to eyeball how many units are in a given area. True,
1: sure. you're talking about the, the the sort of like the side upgrade. I have the two points. One is the figures, but and if you think back about how old first edition was and how fantastic those figures were compared to figures of that time, it's true. There, it is. It is, it was a great thing, and these ones are definitely not. You know, they're worse. Then, like you said, they are bigger, they're easily eyeballed, but they're not shaded, they're not as detailed. Yeah, the
0: monsters used to be shaded, now they're not shaded anymore. I I do miss that, absolutely. The old monsters had had a sense of character that the new ones don't.
1: And now the pyramids, they look fantastic. And like we talked about, the old pyramids were a D4 and they had, you know, their own little nuances and, and were very clever. The fact that, you know, they were a pyramid shape and you can rotate them to whatever level they were. Charming. They were very charming. Charming is the word for sure. And now they have nice plastic pyramids that look wonderful, except that there's just this weird little jump between three level, and four. level three and level four, where you have this nicely, what, what nominates its color. Right? You have four different colors or whatever different colors of pyramid, so it has this little clear piece of plastic on the top, which will tell you what color it is, and that's the fourth level. But if you don't have the fourth level, you sort of have to flip it upside down, and it's not always easily apparent right off the look, whether it's been up or down. So when they went through the trouble of making these great things, I wish they had, they had made it so it worked better in the game.
0: A number of minor missteps as well. The cardboard warped rather considerably when immediately being removed. It has gotten better since uh, just being allowed to sit for a while. This new board to track victory points, which was great. It made it much more apparent who was going to win. The new victory system is very well done. As we've talked about, the new Divine Intervention cards feel much more balanced. Again, in terms of gameplay, everything has just been polished in a
1: very, very well done way. Very similar to the Game of Thrones sort of thing. If people have played a lot of Game of Thrones, the newer edition has, you know, the the track that keeps track of how many castles people have at that time, so you're not there going around sitting, counting everything up. Same sort of feeling. You have a quick glance at the board, and you know exactly how many victory points everyone has.
0: And unlike Game of Thrones, it's fun. Exactly. So I'd have to say that if you haven't played Comet before and you're looking for a top-tier Troops on a Map game, I really do think that Comet Blood and Sand is definitely something that deserves your attention. If you're a previous owner, well, there was an upgrade pack that was being sold during the Kickstarter. I'm not sure if they have any plans to make it available aftermarket, but I do think that the enhancements in terms of the balance of the, of the tiles and the divine intervention cards is solid design work. Is it worth getting a new edition? Probably not, unless you're an obsessive completionist and or already sold your soul to the hobby like I have but I do appreciate the develop work that, development work that has gone into it even if I find some of the component choices somewhat mystifying and that was Kemet Blood
1: and Sand put out by Madagat Games and designed by I, I want to hear you say this Walker Never Jacques Barat and Gilgamesh Montage Jacques Barrio and Guillaume Montiage. You'll get much montage. I like that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's solid. So I'm going to do it like segue, you know, go about five paragraphs back and segue Game of Thrones. I stream Scythe. I want to start stream, streaming more on our channel. So I streamed a game of Scythe. It's mostly just, you know, me playing the game while hopefully people show up and we chat about games in general. Not necessarily the one I'm playing at that time. But we're going to give it a try. Next up is going to be Game of Thrones, because I do have the digital edition of Game of Thrones. So sometime this week, I'll be on playing some Game of Thrones. Stop in and check it out. Is it true you also give tax advice while doing so? Yes, but you have to have the code. Uh, so Scythe is done by Jamie Stegmeier and published by Stonemeyer Games. It is a favorite of mine, and Mark sometimes likes it. Likes it as well.
0: <laughs> I like the game as <laughs> fine. I'm not. I have not been ambiguous in my appreciation of the game. I just don't like the digital version. But that's not uncommon. I dislike most digital adaptations of games. I've been very clear on this.
1: Yeah, it's it. The 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 player HUD is rough in that particular implementation for sure.
0: And it really takes what I what I take to be a smooth in person experience and makes it feel far more tedious than it needs to be.
1: One hundred percent.
0: So. The first entrance under Mark is a Blithering Idiot, I played a game called Finished by Friedman Freeze. Friedman Freeze is per- one of those designers who I'm, I'm always interested in trying his new output. We talked about Fahim not too long ago, a fascinating little game. And he's best known probably for Power grade although my favorite for his output, output is Fortress of the Fast Forward series. And again, this is because he takes existing ideas, such as the legacy format or the evolving format, and he's got this... Weird sort of fabled fruit system that he's revisited a number of ways. And the fast forward system is a fascinating little bit. So anyway, I wanted to try Finished, which is a solitaire only game because Friedman Freeze put out Friday, which was a very, very good solitaire card game back before solitaire games were cool. Now it's not uncommon to see things like Underfalling Skies or a variety of other designs that are either designed for solo or have excellent solo modes. But when Friday was released, it was a little bit more of a novelty. But it was really, really well done. Finished came highly recommended, and it made me feel like a moron. Because it was one of those games where it's a very, very simple rule set, and I couldn't understand why you would do anything. It wasn't that I didn't understand the victory conditions, and it's not that I felt that the game was pointless, although there was a certain amount of that. In, in, in a bit, but when playing finished, I would look at all these special actions available to me and said, what's the benefit in my doing any of these? It, it was literally a case of, I, I was given a set of simple operations, I knew what my starting point was, I knew what my end point needed to be, and I couldn't figure out how the tools I had would get me from A to B. I kept at it. Part of it is that your early turns, your early go through the deck, is the most difficult you have the most options, but you seem to have the least effect. The fewest things are happening. You're basically setting up for later turns, which is not uncommon in games, but it really felt daunting. And so now I've played, finished three times. I've even won, finished. I don't know how I did it. Did you?
1: Did you finish? Finished?
0: I finished. Finished. And one of the charming thing, one of the many charming things about finished. There's so many lovely little touches about finished that really show that Friedman Freeze touch of genius. He really finished it off. He did. You are fueled by coffee and sweets. Little bits of candy, these delightfully little, little wooden uh, wooden bits that power your special abilities. And when you run out of coffee, you fall asleep and lose. And the goal of the game is to organize a deck of cards that are shuffled from 1 to 48 and organize them in 1 to 48. It really is a riff on Solitaire, the traditional 52-card Solitaire game, in that... and even some of the the specific mechanisms are the same in that you turn over three cards if any cards score they immediately go out and you you keep on your merry way and that's what you're supposed to be doing much of the time though what you are doing or at least the way I play and again I'm not an authority on how to play finished well as I said I'm a moron and finished makes me feel stupid but you pull over three cards you can reorganize the cards that are in front of you but then once you're done using special abilities which again I don't know why you use special abilities (laughs) (laughs) Or at least I don't know how to use them well. They then shove down into the past, and whatever used to be in the past, or at least whatever in excess of three, goes to the bottom of the deck. So many of your turns, when you don't have special abilities to trigger, or you can't trigger special abilities because you used up all your candy because you have poor impulse control in the Sweet Tooth like I do, you're turning over three cards, maybe shuffling one over, and then taking three cards and putting them at the bottom of the deck. Repeat, 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 repeat. And so I felt like I was, it really felt like I was playing Solitaire for, for bits of it. And it felt a little bit like I've talked about in terms of roll and rights. I felt like I was kind of doing paperwork or busy work. I don't know how I won that game, Walker. I think I won it. I, don't, I, I think I've got the rules down. It's so bizarre. I'm gonna have to go back to it I, again. There are people that I that I that I trust a great deal who are big fans of Finished, and I don't think that Friedman Freeze would release a game that was pure busy work. And clearly, I did something right. You <laughs> so got I, them all organized. So I'm going to have to, again, I'm just going to have to think about what it is that's going on, because I I should note, I should analogize this a little bit to give a little bit more context. Sometimes there are games where the card flow doesn't make a whole lot of sense, that I can't really internalize it, that eventually makes sense. uh, An easy example of this is Ginkopolis. When you explain how new cards enter the system into Ginkopolis and how cards leave the system in Ginkopolis, most people get confused and can't understand how it works. And I was like that, too, until you start playing, and then you see, wait a minute, okay. And then you kind of internalize how the cards flow through the system. I'm at that stage with finished. I kind of understand what what's going on, and I kind of understand how I'm supposed to be doing it in terms of good play, but it hasn't really sunk in yet, and I'm still just babbling like an idiot. Stumbling through. Stumbling through. And so I'm going to have more to say later, I hope, when and if finished ever makes sense. So that was finished by Friedman Freeze. I'm
1: going to segue, because we had played another sort of deck organization game called Groundhog Day, put out by Funko Games and designed by Prospero Hall. That's an odd name. Um, <laughs> so Groundhog Day. Have one joke about Ryan Arkinsia and one joke about Prospero Hall. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm uh, at my limit. So... <laughs> In Groundhog Day, you're trying to have the perfect day. So you're playing these cards, which you have to play in order, much like finish. You have to go from lowest to highest. And on the bottom of some of these cards, there's going to be hearts. And after you've played seven cards, because everyone has a hand of cards, you can play out of turn, you just play them as you think you should to try to get to make sure they're in, in ascend, ascending order. And then you add up the hearts for that particular round after you've played seven cards. And then the next round, you have to make sure you get more hearts. And what you're trying to do by the end of the game is play around where you play all of a special card that has four hearts per card. And there's some cards at the very top of the board that you have to unlock that are these cards. And there's all this sort of play and you're not allowed to talk. And I found it a very interesting and super fun game. Real-time
0: co-op no communication permitted game, which has been analogized very clearly and very obviously to The Mind. We have not played The Mind. It's one of the lacuna in our recent gaming experiences. I do know that there is a raging debate online, and even amongst some people that I'm familiar with, about whether or not The Mind is actually a game. I do not wish to engage in this debate. I just want to acknowledge its existence. And Groundhog Day sounds an awful lot like The Mind. I really enjoyed it. It was incredibly quick. I thought it was most fascinating in terms of its adaptation of the source material. Now, anybody who has not seen Groundhog Day... It is a serious gap in your cinematic history. You should watch Groundhog Day. It's a fabulous film. If you are interested in doing so, which you should, you should skip to the next segment because the rest is going to be spoilers. Because I, ca- I have a lot of thoughts about how the Groundhog Day, the, d- the game, adapts the movie. Now, the first objection that I have to how it adapts the movie is that it presents the arc of Phil Connors' suspended life as every day being better than the previous one. Now, I understand that's a conceit for the game, and in terms of modifying the source material, I'm kind of okay with that, because it would be too difficult and too complicated, and perhaps even too overwrought for the length of the game, to represent his ascent into power fantasy, his dis- his his further shift into incredibly rapey behavior, his prolonged bout of nihilistic self-destruction, followed by his attempts at self-improvement, and finally something resembling, i call it what you want, enlightenment, nirvana, what have you. Redemption story. Exactly, redemption story. Instead, Groundhog did the game, as Walker explained, every day is better than the previous one, or you lose. It's just a constant upward swing. That part I'm kind of okay with, in part because I actually joked when the game was first announced, are they going to represent a prolonged bout of suicide? No, and that's fine, I'm okay with that. I do really, really like how they tr- uh, how they involved this round structure to kind of represent the story of the movie. You have a series of days, and various beats are repeated, but in slightly different ways. Your encounter with Ned gets eventually better and better. You start off by punching him in the face, and then you shove him away... And then you're like, oh, I remember you. You know, there's there's an evolution there, and it's it, it's it's well done. Stephen Tobolowski's a genius. The part that I really object to, though, and I kind of think I know why they did it is, I, I, I mentioned that there's this prolonged bout where Phil is is rather rapey, and that's fu- I don't object to that in the movie. It's presented as bad, and he he gets past it. Whether you think that it is appropriate for someone to redeem themselves from that is a matter of, of discussion, of course. But I think it's well done. One of the perfect day cards is the product of him being rapey. One of the perfect day cards, in fact, several of them are... Like, for example, one is French poetry. He recites French poetry as a result of his manipulation, using his knowledge of previous days to know that Rita likes French poetry. So one of the perfect day cards is him trying to be rapey. I don't approve. They didn't have to do that. There are so many things that he does... Later on, when he's fully redeemed, when he's reached that level of self-awareness and self-possession, that they could have included. Now, the explanation that was offered to me by Dr. Contra, and it seems to me on the face of it compelling, they wanted to include story beats that people would remember from the movie. Even if they'd only seen it once several years ago and they don't rewatch it compulsively like I do because I'm some sort of rewatching freak. For example just as, as an instance. I mean, everyone's got their favorite moments. Like, There's the moment where he saves the kid from falling off of the tree, which I regard as one of the most Kantian moments in all of film because the consequence doesn't matter. He knows it's of no consequence. He doesn't enjoy it. He receives no thanks for it, but he does it anyway. There could be no better cinematic representation of Kantian duty than that moment. But it's not as memorable as the time when he recites French poetry. <clears throat> all right. I should stop. Do <laughs> you understand to where I'm getting at, Walker? 100%. <laughs> So, much like
1: in many other times we say there's so much other stuff there why did they have to fall back on that again i that yeah. applies to so many things
0: i agree i agree 100% i think it's just because they wanted to stick with memorable story beats that's fine but there's a, there are lots of lovely bits in groundhog day the game i really like the artwork they clearly didn't have the rights to the likenesses of anyone in the movie so they have the the framing is really cool like you never see anyone's face but it's really neat they just have these really artistically done little vignettes on the cards I really like how every day is like sort of a, a, a clip show of various bits of the movie where Phil's being under an, jackass and slightly getting better. I like the game, super light, super quick. It's evocation of the theme is half great, half regrettable. I'm very, very glad to have tried it.
1: Yeah, I love that one part of the game where you have to decide, now is the time that we're going to go for this perfect day. you got to sort of like say, okay, now we're going to bloat the, the deck with all these cards. We're going to push for it now. And it's like, oh, we got our cards, okay, and we're not going to push for it now. Then we still get through both rounds. I thought it was great. The only thing, I, like I said, I didn't like about it is that we won our first game. And if you win your first game in a co-op game, then,
0: eh... Well, you can. there are difficulty levels. You can start later on on the track and start with fewer cards. So right. we can try that next time.
1: Oh, yeah, that's another thing we didn't mention. You get less and less cards in your hand every round, which is, which is a nice way to you know, h- hype up the tension. They
0: really do up the tension, yes, because the burden is to play better and better cards, but you don't want to lose the red cards, and so
1: you wonder if you're going to make it. As I say, really well done. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the gameplay experience. And that was Groundhog Day. Next up, we did a very quick game of Street Masters, only because we got thumped, thrashed. Street Masters is designed by Adam Sadler and Brady Sadler and put out by Blacklist Games. It is a fantastic sort of deck, deck slash miniature skirmish game.
0: Yeah, we were fighting against Clan Hatori and the... A lot of the clan deck is based on buffing the boss, and the boss just got a whole bunch of upgrades right off the top, whereby in the first few turns of the game, the boss was just dealing huge quantities of damage to everybody. And uh, I'm not sure there's a whole lot we could have done, but that's okay. I mean, there's a lot of randomness and variance about where the cards come out. Streetmaster is very much like its arguable inspiration, Sentinels of the Multiverse. Most characters need a few turns
1: to get going, and by the end of it, you're doing massive combos. Yeah, and and it has those really off games where you just, you know, shuffled the deck in a certain way that... Absolutely. a, ...a particular combo of cards comes out, and you're all dead. One thing that I was reminded of, though...
0: It's been too long. We need to play more Street Masters. Part of the problem is there's no online adaptation and, you know, lockdowns. But for a game with tons and tons of stuff, setup has not become problematic. And I really do appreciate that. So it's, you know, this massive cube, because I have everything that's been published for Street Masters. And for many games that are a massive cube, you really have to be careful with the organizational scheme, or things are going to get very, very complicated. Not so much with Street Masters. Uh, Yeah, you need to worry about what you're going to do with the minis. But other than that, you're always just going to be pulling three decks, and they come with lovely little dividers. So I was very, very pleased to be reminded of that. And you seemed to
1: enjoy returning to it. Yes, 100%. We need to play it a lot more.
0: I agree. We need to play a lot more Street Masters. Next up, we played another new game,
1: Imperium the Contention.
0: This is to be distinguished from, of course, Dune Imperium or Imperium Classics or Twilight Imperium or any number of other games. Involved. Tons of
1: Imperiums out there.
0: There's lots of... It. Is it Imperia at that point?
1: This is this is designed by Gary Doretsky and published by Contention Games. This was a Kickstarter, not the edition we have, but it was on Kickstarter and this is a very interesting play out your spaceships on this, on this map and you're exploring out and you're trying to conquer planets and put out cool ships and do interesting things. Now, Mark, would you, or would you not agree that near the end, it had a great sort of back and forth trying to keep the planets even. And we're both very close to winning at a particular point? And there was sort of like a back and forth and we're trying to stop each other from winning. There was definitely like a turning point there. Yes, And what I'm worried about is, it is not a two-player game, and I'm worried about what would happen if a third player was thrown into a mix like that, what that would do. Now, I didn't get to read the rule book. is there any sort of gameplay changes when you add more players?
0: Other than the fact that in a multiplayer game, loss of your homeworld does not entail the immediate end of the game and victory for the other party? No. I share your misgivings. I'm very dubious about how good the multiplayer experience will be, but... It does have one little bit, and I complained a little bit about this in the context of Daimyo, and I complain about this all the time in the context of multiplayer conflict games that are not Kemet. I'm vaguely hopeful because when you're involved in a war of attrition against another player, if you're constantly trading systems back and forth between each other, you're both going to profit. The game incentivizes combat. In Imperium the Contention, when you destroy somebody else's colony, you gain two favor and they lose one, which I think is the proper balance. Now, there are other reasons why you don't want to lose a colony. You start losing resources, and that's a problem. So there might be a serious issue there. There might be a rich get-richer issue. We didn't see that in our game, but it might happen with multiplayer. But I'm at least vaguely hopeful that that element alone might help to serve to make it functional with multiple players. And I was sufficiently pleased with our initial playing that I would like to try again. I would compare this very much in the same sort of design space, mechanically very different, but Imperium the Contention reminds me of Quantum a little bit, in that, well, Well, it's kind of a 4x game, but you know, not really a 4x game or Warp Gate. Same kind of idea, sort of a 4x light where there are nods to the various. Yeah, they they want to give you the
1: feeling. Precisely, it's not going to hit every every note, but it's going to let you think you're hitting every note.
0: Absolutely, it reminded me actually a little bit of some of the many Magic clones, like. Epic the card game, or any number of Star Realms derivatives that some- forge blah blah blah. That sometimes feel a little bit like Magic: Clones, Like I have a two four monster that's attacking your three three monster. You know stuff like that. In that, a lot of a lot of it is just about deploying ships properly. It's a lot about just combat units. Unlike a game like Warp Gate, which. There's combat, but it's not the primary focus. It's a little bit more, again, like Quantum, where there's going to be a lot of combat and a lot of head-to-head fighting.
1: But the ships were delightful. They had nice little special abilities. Yeah. The fact they're different or two sides. You know, they have all these different races. Yep. There's also some deck building in there. And deck the, construction. Deck construction.
0: You can the, build your own deck, but they also have pre-constructed decks that don't that aren't boring. Oftentimes when you have a game where it's like, well, you can build your deck, or you can use these starter decks. The starter decks are already flavorful and distinct.
1: And there's, yeah, like you said, there's themes to your deck of way not ways you should play it, but, you know, ways they work together well.
0: Absolutely. Now... This is going to be entry two under uh, Mark is a blithering idiot for our discussion this week. So we had a bit of a problem, and by we, I'm using the royal we here. This was this was a Mark problem, not a Walker problem. A system came up and it had a keyword, and it's like, oh, deploy. What does that mean? So I looked at the glossary. It's like not the glossary. We both pull out our phones. We both start doing a search. I'm like, okay, I guess. I mean, it's not that complicated an ability. I, I guess it just means when it comes out, it does the thing once. That's what deploy means. Okay, fine. And then another card came out. I'm like, oh, well, what? What, what, a, what, what, a, you know, if only there were, I and, said and, gesturing towards the rulebook, if only there were something like on the back of the rulebook, a list of all the keywords with all the special abilities. And then I look over at the rulebook and that's exactly what it had.
1: <laughs> uh, so. This was after me complaining as well. It was like, God, you know, a game with so many keywords, it should be like here on a page with all the <laughs> list of all the keywords. <laughs> it. This is not even in my defense, this is just to explain
0: how I made the error. I, there is no defense for my stupidity on this one. It's because there was a glossary, but the glossary was only for core gameplay terms. All the special abilities were explained on the back of the rulebook. So I was literally picking up the rulebook, going past the keyword reference, to, to look at the glossary for the keyword that I wanted to find anyhow. Uh, it's it, The rulebook is relatively well done, and the reference is really well done, if you're not a complete and total moron. I thoroughly enjoyed Imperium the Contention. It's got multiple victory conditions. I don't know how they, in our game at least, both of them came into play. We were within striking distance of a variety of things. I liked it. Yeah, no, I'm,
1: I'm anxious to play it again. And that is Imperium the Contention. We also returned to Command & Color Samurai Battles. And this really showed me how really well done Battle Lore 2 was. The fact that they changed up the the sort of victory point conditions and gave you so many different ways on getting them. And they didn't just always lock it down to the same memoir 44, where it's only the destruction of units. And also the way the sort of the flowing, uh, scenario mechanism works in, in battle or two, where you just have a set. It's like your scenario versus my scenario. And they always, you know, seem to work together at least all of the games that I've played in this particular one. It was, a very small little skirmish, and I, and I had to kill every single one of Mark's units. And, and if anyone knows the Command & Colors games, there's a lot of retreating. It's a very large map, so if you're talking about small amount of units, we could spend half the afternoon chasing each other down <laughs> the battlefield. It didn't work out that way, but there was, there was a, an opportunity for that to happen.
0: This is the strength and the weakness of historical wargaming. Battle Lore 2nd Edition is not a historical war game by any stretch of the imagination. Commands and Colors Samurai Battles is kind of trying to be a historical war game. There are two major problems with historical war games, and one of them is that sometimes they are very scenario-dependent, and secondly, as kind of a corollary to that, Sometimes the balance is suspect because the historical victors are apt to win. I think Walker is actually underselling the extent to which he had a tough row to hoe. I keep forgetting about this. I don't know why I keep forgetting. But when you're playing a commands and colors game especially, they'll give you a little historical introduction to the battle. And I read the historical introduction to the battle. And you have to remember, whoever won the historical battle is probably going to win the commands and colors game. Now, I still love the commands and colors system. That's fine. I don't care that the scenarios are unbalanced. I care sometimes when the scenarios are a little bit silly. And in this scenario, Walker's exactly right. I had four units in a leader. He had to murder all of them. His units had such a tough road to hoe. The only way for Walker to win that scenario, it wasn't even that it would be too difficult. It's that he just had to keep throwing his cheaper units against my elite cavalry, hoping to get an implausible result to get some kills. And that's not what I would call a, a good scenario design in that particular instance. I still enjoyed it, but that's only because the system is super fun. Not because I felt the scenario was to its strength. I should have done what I... I, I keep forgetting about this. File this under Marcus as a blithering idiot entry number three for this week. You look at the scenario, and I've played enough commands and colors games to know if I look at the scenario and say, that looks really dodgy, turn the page... <laughs> I should have just turned because the- there's a whole book of there's them. There's so many scenarios. So this is a review copy we got from GMT Games, and they have a ridiculous number of scenarios in Samurai Battles. And I should have gone to a different
1: one. <laughs> so this, again, my fault. That, I being, claim- that being said, still had a great time. Saw a whole bunch of new command cards that I hadn't seen in the first play. That had a lot of like cool little twists about you know drawing more cards and picking one of, or you know doing other stuff. You know, that's, that was out of the normal scope of a Command & Colors game, and... Well, those
0: those have been in Commands &
1: Colors systems for a long time. And the the dragon cards, they weren't so weird and funky this time.
0: It's true. They were less funky. This time, the card that I played with a dragon in it didn't seem like magic. Instead, just seemed like improvement in command and control. So, still super orientalist as a game, although this playing didn't really highlight the super orientalist aspects.
1: Command and Colors, Samurai Battles, designed by Richard Borg and put out by GMT Games. In other solitaire
0: gaming, I pulled out Asgard's Chosen. You've, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you've probably heard us talk about this before. Asgard's Chosen is probably one of my favorite Norse mythology games right up there with Blood Rage. It is a super strange game that, and I mean this in all sincerity, I know I've cried wolf one too many times, is vaguely reminiscent of Mage Knight in that it is a deck builder where you, are really, you really have to be conscientious about building up these interesting combos of, of, of very potent effects that play out on the map. And I really like how they integrate the victory conditions. We talk about this all the time. Your starting deck is trash because it's a deck builder, but they are your victory conditions. And so you need them around and you get to play to whatever's in your hand in a given turn to satisfy those victory conditions. I really like it solo when you play it with the variant that there's basically angry gods in the deck otherwise the solo version is borderline trivial the victory conditions as explained out of the box are absurdly easy to accomplish but there's an excellent variant on board game geek i'll put up the link again in the episode notes if you haven't already seen it That's really well done asgard's chosen is a game that flew under the radar when it was released in 2013 but it's one of my favorite games of its ilk and i think it's got some super super clever bits and i thoroughly enjoy it every time i play it and i really love how it Uses Norse mythology as a little bit more than window dressing, and the cards feel flavorful in a really nice way. And so, I also got to play with some 3D printed Viking figures that were very thoughtfully given to me by the Hanverker. So instead of the utterly terrible components that come out of the box, the cards are nice, but everything else is really, really amateurish. Uh, I've been meaning to substitute in little Viking figures for the very bad meeples that come in in the box, and it just makes the game. sing and bring it to that level. And I pull it out every once in a while for solo and I'm never disappointed. I also pull it out for multiplayer. It's a little bit tricky to explain, but once people get into it, it's really, really well done. I highly recommend Asgards Chosen and I had a great time with it.
1: We should almost grab Blood Rage when we play Asgards Chosen. Just grab a bunch of Vikings out of that and play with those.
0: I've done that before. They're a little too big. They are big. And then I have to worry about getting the components back for Blood Rage whenever I play that. So for reasons of efficiency and for size, I'm very, very glad to have these extra figures.
1: And that is Asgard's Chosen. So back to streaming news. As our usual Saturday morning at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time, we this time played Spirit Island. There is a tabletop simulator mod that is quite amazing. It does all sorts of stuff right, and I actually had a fun time playing it this time. I think this just is going to buckle down to knowing the game more and understanding what the game wants you to do as opposed to just fumbling around and and complaining the whole game. <laughs>
0: Join us for an opportunity of personal growth with
1: Michael Locker. The other thing could be the fact that when I did go for extra cards, cards that actually helped me came up. If I think back, you know, to other gameplays, it was like, okay, I'm milling this deck. None of the cards are matching the symbols that I need, where this time it was the exact opposite. These are not only great, you know, good matching, but they're perfect for what I do. So... That experience was fantastic.
0: We can table the discussion of Mark thinks Walker doesn't understand how to use hand management for another day. I'm very glad that you took to your spirit because spirit choice is very, very personal and very important when it comes to Spirit Island. Some people just can't grok certain spirits and some people take to them. What was happening with you, you took a spread of rampant green. And I actually ran a Twitter poll for what spirit I should play, and Twitter failed me by producing a three-way tie. I ended up playing Shadows Flicker Like Flame. I think
1: people grouped up and did that on purpose. I think it was a, a, an effort to baffle you. I'm you think fl- it was collusion? Yeah. <gasps>
0: Do you think it was Russian bots? Yes. Oh, I'm being trolled by Russian bots. We've made it, Walker. We've made it the big time. <laughs> to the top, baby. All right. And I took Shadows Flicker Like Flame in part because... I believe they are unfairly maligned on the internet. Everyone talks about how Shadows Flicker is a weak spirit, can't hold their own. I'm not an expert at the game by any stretch of the imagination, but Shadows Flicker is probably one of my favorites, both in terms of thematic elements and in terms of gameplay effect. And I was very proud at keeping my little corner of the map clean. Now, of course, if I ever looked over to the left, I would see what was going on in Dewey's board. (laughs) And it was festooned with Prussians. Prussians all the way down over on Dewey's board. But this was this persisted until about halfway through the game, when Walker really started coming into his own, clearing out places like you wouldn't believe, doing tremendous quantities of damage, sometimes with Huey's help, but sometimes all just by yourself. And so I'm very glad you took to spread of Rampant Green. That was great. And the game ended in a very memorable way, because we were kind of teetering on the brink of disaster. There was a lot of blight everywhere, because again, there were lots of cities. And we started looking at the situation, we said, well... One way we could win is if we generate 31 more fear. And Dewey said, yeah, I can do that. What, you mean by yourself? He said, oh yeah, with one card. <laughs> and so he proceeded. He proceeded to do that. Actually, uh, he we stopped counting at around 40 fear, actually, the next turn when he played that card. He probably could have cracked 50 without breaking a sweat. It was something. It was a way to end the game. It was drawn in towards an all-consuming void. And basically, he sucked up all the invaders into his board and uh, drove them all insane.
1: Yeah, he had this sort of combo where the card destroyed stuff and generated fear, and then the spirit he was playing had a thing where any fear that he generated was doubled or something.
0: No, thing. Uh, Bringer of Dreams and Nightmares, which is who Dewey was playing, can't destroy anything. That spirit doesn't do damage in the same way that other spirits do. When Dewey's spirit does damage such that it would destroy something, that thing is not destroyed, it instead generates a whack of fear. And so with the card, which does 15 damage, sucks everything into an area and does 15 damage, he just started pinging false destructions all over the place, and so racked up the scoreboard. Now, keep in mind, he was generating a lot of fear throughout the game anyway, and Shadow's Flicker generates lots of fear anyway, because Shadow's Flicker is a solid, solid top-tier spirit. So it was a great session, and my understanding is, Walker, that you wish
1: to repeat it. I do. Uh, There's a We'll probably play again, because... My mouse wasn't working, Mark. I hit record to record our session, and obviously there was some sort of function. I think it was those Russian bots again. Ugh, uh, those Russian it, bots. It wasn't recorded, and I think I think I should we should have a recording of us playing Spirit Island. So I think we will return to it again this coming Saturday to uh, up the difficulty again. I think maybe I should run another poll to
0: be disappointed. And you know what else? What I think we should do? We need our own Russian bots. I agree. Excellent. I'll try to get on that.
1: And that is Spirit Island, published by Greater Than Games and designed by... R. Eric Royce. R. Eric Royce. From Spirit Island, let's go to another great game we played, Galaxy Hunters. Wait, I do do not accept that segue. (laughs) Designed by Daniel Elves and published by IDW Games. So like I was telling you earlier, Mark, I don't know why it's called Galaxy Hunters, because you're playing to become the Galaxy Hunter, so there's not really any Galaxy Hunters until the end of the game where there's one. So that That's your big problem? That's I, the no, it is definitely not, <laughs> not the biggest of problems. Now, uh, I've talked about this game already once. I sort of said I wanted to hold off until you had a chance to play it, and I've been... Over and over, comparing it to after the Empire. Now, do you you think that comparison was justified in any way? 100%. So that comparison leads to the fact that you sort of build up Something and then you go out and and spend all your resources and then you spend the next turns just building those resources back up again so you can spend them all destroying something and then build it all back up again rinse and repeat over and over again. Meantime, there's all this interesting stuff around the board. These like these cool uh, guys you can hire, interesting weapons you can build, end game scoring points, other stuff you can be doing, but you're mostly just wasting your time. Milling these resources, of which, like I said, there are 21 resources to keep track of.
0: I think you're both being too kind and too harsh, because unlike After the Empire and Galaxy Hunters, it doesn't take that much effort to kit yourself up to go and kill something again. I mean, in theory, you're piloting these giant stompy robots that are going and killing mutants. And, of course, the game manages to make that incredibly dull. At least the the fighting in After the Empire, although it was very procedural and took way too long, it felt kind of sort of like a siege. There were people going on, your archers got to shoot people. It wasn't the most dynamic and exciting combat in the world, but it felt like combat rather than purely accounting. The accounting came later. In Galaxy Hunters, it's just accounting all the way down. It's like, I'm going to go kill this monster. It takes two blue cubes. I then spend two green cubes and a, and a red cube. Okay, I've killed the monster. Which... Sometimes games do a good job of producing that subtle alchemy of making transactions like that exciting, and sometimes games don't. And Galaxy Hunters is definitely in that latter category of making it don't. But it was painless. Combat in Galaxy Hunters is painless, and you can do it up to a couple times a turn, and sometimes you don't even need to refresh cubes in the middle because you've set things up with your tech such that that's not
1: necessary. But the, the corporations that hire the robots, they need to get their stuff in line. Like, they've got all this tech to make the robots, but they accidentally subcontracted the weapons to somebody else, and then you have to go buy them. So, like, when you get your robot, it doesn't come with any weapons. There's all these really cool weapons available that obviously are made for mechs, but those aren't... You don't get those to start. You have to, like, spend the first couple turns going out to to get the resources and then go buy them. And now, now your mech has weapons, and now the mutants better watch out.
0: The first round was
1: painless and pointless, and it made me angry.
0: Angry. It also made Huey angry. The second round, some people started to get going. By the third round, we were all up and running, and so that was fine. But the problem is, so you, yeah, you start with this with no resources and this mech with no weapons, and you can do nothing before the mech has weapons. No, no default weapons, no starter weapons, nothing. And the weapons, good lord! <laughs> so there's six different kinds of metal. And the metal is presented in the same way as other resources that are entirely different. Non-metal resources that are spent in a different way, but sometimes in the same way. So you look over in the shop, and it's like, okay, it needs two of this metal, one of this other metal, and one of this non-metal thing. I'm like, wait a minute. Wait, what? And so literally the first few turns, what you're doing is you're constantly looking over these tiny little dots on hexes to try to figure out to go buy a weapon for the first turn. And you're managing all these different resources on a common board. Part of this, I think, could have been helped with some better... Either graphic design or some component design. When you've got about a dozen trackers all on the same board, whether it's hull damage and radiation and fame and six different kinds of metal and money and all these other things, it has this sort of homogenizing effect, and so I couldn't tell when looking at a tile, whether this is just an assortment of metal, or some other weird stuff I mean, come on, give me different icons for different kinds of resources, they did separate out DNA, DNA is this mostly uh, resource you get from killing monsters I'm not going to say it was this tremendous innovation, but at least when looking at something, I had a better idea that it was DNA, as opposed to one of the six kinds of metal, or one of the four kinds of other non-metal things oh i'll tell you what this reminds me of honestly i hated galaxy hunters but it what it reminds me of and i realize we're not going to see the same page on this it reminds me of of a phenomenon that i associate most clearly with twilight imperium third edition there are these people that want to design this science fiction game or this heavily thematically inflected game they play a euro once and they're like hey that's cool Let's drag in these Euro mechanisms into our sci-fi game, and that's really going to give it some game design cred or bona fides. And so whether you play Puerto Rico once and design uh, Twilight Imperium 3rd edition, or you play Agricola once and design Galaxy Hunters, it's the same problem. When you just take these staid Euro elements and port them without much creative thought into what could be a sci-fi game, you don't end up with a well-balanced, gamerly sci-fi romp. You end up with a bland, dull, procedural, restrictive experience. And so this worker placement element's like, I go here to get three metal. Can I buy an axe yet? No, 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 because the axe requires one of that metal and two of another thing, and it also requires
1: a widget and a goldfinch. And so... (sighs) Oh, you need the widget? Well, sorry, that that planet's full now, so you can't get the widget this turn. You'll have to wait till next turn. But wait you have enough reputation now to go there wait not enough players which can I go to that planet yet okay now it's open come on over
0: yeah yeah I hated galaxy hunters I the only question that I have is would I rather play galaxy hunters or would I rather play after the Empire and honestly I don't know because, as I say, you know, they're both overlong, heavily procedural, and I think mostly a waste of time and just uninspired worker placement elements. But I will say this about Galaxy Hunters. By the end of the game, I was at least killing more things and combat was a little bit more fluid. But, by the same token, after the Empire, the combat was more satisfying and the worker placement ele- uh, spaces, although as boring as Galaxy Hunters, it was at least a little tighter.
1: Yeah, and Galaxy Hunters was was much, much too long. Like, even even we reduced it when we played, it was still way too long.
0: Well, but so was After the Empire. After the Empire was also way too long for what it was. And that is Galaxy Hunters,
1: published by IDW Games
0: played a game of Field Commander Napoleon. This is a solo design by Dan Verson at Dan Verson Games, Dan Verson Games being the game publisher run by Dan Verson to publish the designs of Dan Verson at Dan Verson Games. And Field Commander Napoleon is a sort of solitaire experience of a sort of strategic with a little bit of tactical elements of the campaigns of Napoleon, stretching all the way back from 1796 to 1815. And the comprehensiveness and scope is really quite impressive. There are a whole bunch of mounted boards to represent all these different campaigns. It tries to capture some elements of Napoleonic formation as well, whether a, a, a given unit is in column or line formation, although completely ahistorical in the sense of the scale represented. We're talking about core scale for a lot of it, or divisional level. You don't put a core in column or line like, doesn't work that way, but anyhow. This is largely in keeping with the rest of Field Commander Napoleon. It wasn't very historical. It was just trying to evoke elements of Napoleonic combat. I'm not an expert on the Napoleonic Wars by any stretch of the imagination, but it's at a very, very high level, and the formation is trying to give you a little bit of a feel. The names of the corps to try to give you a little bit of a feel. The place names are supposed to give you that. What I didn't like about it was you're kind of, you kind of have to rely on the stupidity of the AI. I don't mind when a game is... Too easy too much i don 't really mind when a game is too hard either, but the thing is is that it it really messes with my risk assessment when you have to rely on the AI being that stupid, you know, especially when playing what is ostensibly a historical war game. If you give me thirty five points of unit strength, I find it weird to expect to throw them against a force of sixty unit strength and just knowing that i 'm going to come out on top because the AI is moronic and they 're just going to do dumb things and run around in a circle with, as Walker would say, with their pants on their head. And so I I, I found it pleasant. I really enjoyed it. It was flavorful and getting to run around with Napoleonic units and, and get to see some of my favorite campaigns represented. But that element in particular really rubbed me the wrong way. So it kind of sapped away some of the flavor of, of the, the, the Napoleonic exchanges. It's also the case, and this is just a minor personal preference, I don't really like playing as Napoleon or as the French. People say, oh, well, Mark, you know, you, you, you speak French. Clearly you want to play as Napoleon. No. I want to play as the Russians. If I can't play as the Russians, I'll play as the Prussians, post-reform. If I can't play as the Prussians, post-reform, I'd like to play as the British. If I can't play as the British, I'll play as the Prussians, pre-reform. And if I can't, anyway, I can keep going. Uh,
1: As far as warmongers go, Napoleon is not my cup of tea. He's got a whole flow chart, people. It's... it's it's a sight to see. It, you like unfolds it. It's like about like a map. you ever seen one of those maps of the world? I it color-coded it like, yeah, just so
0: you could understand what yeah. was going on. But anyway, so I really like a lot of the mechanical elements, except for how it all falls apart in terms of the incredible stupidity of the AI. Again, this isn't that the game was too easy, although it was. It really, really was too trivial by the time I was just slaughtering everyone before me because they were just going the wrong way or doing something very silly. And that doesn't make you feel clever. That doesn't make you feel like you're making good choices. Napoleonics, the tower defense game. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So anyway, I I liked the system. I liked the elements of it. I mean, I like a lot of the elements of Danverson designs. But if I'm going to play something where the AI is going to be that silly, I'd actually much rather play something along the lines of Warfighter by Danverson Games because they're at least... In the abstraction of the combat, for the AI to be so stupid, you're just de- determining whether or not they're going to chase you, which they always want to do. And that uniformity somehow makes me feel a little bit better about what's going on at that level of, of abstraction. So as far as Field Commander Maholian goes, lots of solid ideas, lots of cute theming, and I was really, really there for the historical flourishes, and I was even willing to forget all, uh, forgive a lot of the errors of scale or the ahistorical elements. But at the end of the day, if I'm just not in a position to make good combat evaluations based on how silly VIA is going to be, I don't think I'll be coming back for more. So that was my experience with Field Commander Napoleon.
1: All right. For some reason, I never got to play Takaido by Antoine Bauza and published by Funforge, and it's on board game. <coughs> I'm sorry, and it's on Board Game Arena as well as Splendor, which I'll talk about briefly as well. But Takaido, I don't. Know. You played Takedo, Mark. I what, haven't. You haven't played it either? I haven't played Takato. Well, there's this long road, Mark, and it has all these different places you can go to. And it's one of these games where you can go as far as you like, but you're going to miss all these other spaces. And you're you're collecting landscapes and going to restaurants and and shrines and all sorts what of What are other... restaurants? I know. This is in the before times. Oh, okay. But there's only a limited number of spaces, so you can't go everywhere if it's used up. And it'll be like the last person moves and they move forward and so on and so forth. But seeing as there's limited things, people are going to collect their own sort of sets. Like they want the seaside, you want the fields, and they want you know the the pretty forest. So they're just going to go to those space. It seemed one of. The, I played against a, a bunch of people, and I just moved to the next available spot and just. You know, because it was the first time playing, and we were all within a couple points. And I'm just wondering, it was a nice experience. The, the, like, the actual board game itself has beautiful, fantastic-looking pieces, very calm, very zen feel of just, like, moving along the road, and you get to these cool landscapes. I'm just, I'm not sure there's much of a game there. I'm going to look into it more. I really like
0: Antoine Boza, but when the game first came out, I read the rules, and I said, it doesn't look like there's much here. I turned
1: to people I trusted who played it, and they said there's not much there, and so that's why I never played it. All right, then, it's not just me. Good and splendor. Uh, let's just use the same argument there and move on. <laughs> um, well, that, that being said, it, it is—it's a great game to play while you're doing something else. You sort of look <laughs> at the at the board. It has all these uh, bonus things you're shooting for throughout the game that are worth vi- big victory points. You can see the common color that you need. You can say, okay, I'm going to you know sort of move towards getting you know the common one and then the other ones I need, so you get the the gems that you want and. It's a nice, relaxing game to play while you're doing something else. Splendor by Marc-Andre, published by Space Cowboys.
0: And that is all the games we played last week. Believe it or not, they did come to an end. And now uh, on no. to the news and why it doesn't matter. So first off, the SDJ, the Spiel des Jahres, the
1: Game of the Year, has released its list of nominations. We've only played one of these games It's for true. Game of the Year. Uh, one is Adventures of Robin Hood by Michael Menzel and Cosmos. Uh, the other one is Zombie Teens Evolution by Enick Lobet and Le Scorpion Masqué. And it's a, I, I watched a bunch, I won, I didn't look into Robin Hood, but I did look into Zombie Teen Evolution. It's like a legacy game. It's very simple and you go around, you get to put stickers on and stuff. Seems very uh, uh, not good, but. The third and final one is Micro Macro Crime City, and we both love it very much. I'm really glad at the level of
0: success and recognition that Micro Macro Crime City has been getting. I'm also, I just want to give a special shout out to David Thompson. David Thompson is primarily a war games designer. That's where much of his publishing has been. And yet he got on the recommended list with Switch and Signal on the SDJ. So congratulations to him. On the topic of Micro-Macro Crime City, there is going to be more Micro-Macro Crime City. It is obviously an endlessly expandable system. All you need is a new map and a bunch of cases, not to minimize the amount of creativity that you
1: I think if you study the map enough, you probably don't even need a new map. I think you can come up, like I said <laughs> sure. right from the beginning, you come up with maybe some interesting Absolutely. new stories. But anyway, sorry.
0: So Micro-Macro Crime City Full House is going to be released sometime this August. New map, new cases. They promise they're going to be more complicated. I don't know what that's going to look like. And I, from what I can gather, this is not a licensed adaptation of the sitcom. You will not be solving the murder of Uncle Jesse or anything of that nature. I don't know why it's called Full House, and I'm glad the system is continuing. Next up was Expert
1: Game of the Year. And this also, we don't have much to say. Fantasy Realms, I haven't played it. Have you looked at it at all? I, I did look into it. Uh,
0: well, it was the inspiration for Red Rising, your favorite game of this year. It so. looked
1: painful. <laughs> um, Lost Ruins of Arnok. I'm still playing it on Board Game Arena. Better you than me. It's uh, it, it's adequate. And then, <laughs> and then
0: uh,
1: nice. And then Paleo, which um, I'm playing because someone else likes someone it. Someone else likes it. Yes. And this was. And then honorable mention to Barrage? Yes. Like, are you kidding me?
0: Well, okay, look. We, we say this every year, and I remind you every year. The SDJ is not for us. Even the Kennerspiel category is not for us. That's fine. The awards that we look for are more, slightly more the Golden Geeks. The Golden Geeks, obviously, have impeccable judgment. They do. Taste. They uh, know what's what. They know what's what, especially when it comes to podcasting. And the IGA, the International Gamers Awards. Also, the, the Jogo de Daniel uh, the Portuguese game of the year. You know, you start looking at what they've given out in past years, and that gives you a sense of the kind of game they like they, they they like and like to
1: recognize. And the SDJ hasn't been for us for a very long time. All right, let's go through these other ones very quickly. Children's game of the year. Dragon Domino by Bruno Cathala. Mia London, the case of the 625 Scandrels by Antoine Bauza. This one looks adorable, this one here. I haven't looked into it very much, but just the cover and and the art in this is adorable. It's called Storytellers by Marie Fort and Wilford Fort, put out by Lifestyle Board Games. Well, children's gaming, as we often say, is an entire universe with which only you have tangential contact. Next up, I'm going to talk about Descent because they released a bunch of photos and stuff for Descent Legends of the Dark. Now they've gone with a certain art style since 2005 and it's been relatively the same. Now they've gone in a completely different direction and I think it looks quite amazing and wonderful and uh, much like the Hellboy art style, a little bit like Hidden Leaders as well. So uh, I'm, I don't think I'll be able to try it anytime soon at the price tag of two hundred dollars for the base <laughs> game, but uh, the art styles look very interesting. Anyway, I'm just going to be amazed when Fantasy Flight releases a game. I, I, like I was surprised, like when I saw this come up, I I thought this was, had already come out. They you know they hinted at this like a year ago, and I thought it had. already I have released. no idea what's
0: happening with Fa- Fantasy Flight. It's it's a bit of a
1: shame. Yes, thank you, Asmodee. <laughs> Indeed.
0: So Back of Fire, the designer of Sakura Arms and Tragedy Looper, the fascinating Japanese designer, is going to be releasing a new game called Are You Telling Me This Genius Scientist Can't Get the First Place? I different. love Japanese titling conventions. If you watch anime or read manga or read light novels from Japan, you know that they're you know the expectations of what constitutes a title there are. They're willing to tolerate slightly longer digressions. And this has semi-transparent cards that you can rotate and flip. And normally I wouldn't be interested in something that looks like it might be a little bit of a visual spatial puzzle. But I really like Back of Fire's output. And I find, it, I find it just, uh, that they're a fascinating designer. So I'm looking forward to giving it a try. Apparently it's going to be language independent. And so possibly I'll be able to get an import copy before too long if I'm fortunate. Are you telling me this genius scientist
1: can't get the first place? Now for my favorite segment, which we call Who Asked for This? Now, this first one... But first, who asked for this dancers? <laughs> now, this first one came at the very last minute. As I was packing up, I looked over our, our local supplier, you know, put up, you know, the newest games out, and I looked through the games that were released this week, and there's a talisman role-playing game. <laughs> I, I, I guess, great? You get to... <laughs> This is what I thought. I saw In Talisman, the role-playing game, you spin around in circles really, really fast for about (laughs) two hours, and then, depending on which way you fall, you decide if you won or not. Anyway, Talisman RPG. Second one, back in 2004, there was a Lindsay Lohan movie called Mean Girls, and let's pull out one element of that movie called The Burn Book, and let's make a board game out of it. Because... We need more games like cards against humanity that you can ask your friends inappropriate questions and fall back on the premise that oh, it's just a board game. Hee hee hee. There are two ironclad rules that we have here at So Very Wrong about Games. It, it is so true.
0: One of them is context matters. The other one is stop trying to make fetch happen.
1: These are ironclad. It's- it is known.
0: There's going to be a Transformers deck-building game. This is going to be put out by Renegade Games, designed by Matt Hira, who is the guy you call for a licensed deck-building game. He is definitely he is that guy. He's done a whole bunch of work for Cryptozoic, and he's churned out any number of perfectly serviceable and functional deck-builder games based on properties. And it's also going to be co-designed by Dan Blanchett, who is not Matt Hira. And I'm a huge fan of the Transformers When it comes to a Transformers property, I only have one salient question. That is, will Ultra Magnus be there? My heart belongs to Ultra Magnus, whether he's voiced by Robert Stack or anyone else. I don't know whether Ultra Magnus will be there yet, but I just love me some Transformers. Finally for me, there's going to be a Pixel Tactics digital. Pixel, Pixel Tactics is one of the offerings from Level 99 Games. I'm a huge fan of a lot of their output, and especially D. Brad Talton's output, and Trey Chambers. And Pixel Tactics was put up by D. Brad Talton, and there are a whole bunch of sets available. It's a very, very interesting asymmetric design. I have not had a great deal of success introducing it to people. I've, I've kind of fallen out out of it for a while, but the digital version looks delightful. And best of all, based on the information that we have available so far when it's released later this summer, it's not gonna be a subscription model. It's not gonna be a pay as you go for boosters and bling. It's just gonna be a thing you buy on Steam, you know? Like an actual thing you buy and then you have the program. They're gonna they're gonna let you do that? Like,
1: I, I don't think Steam I thought it was against do the that law anymore. I thought it was
0: against the law, but maybe who knows? Maybe Weird. there'll be an early access period just so okay. they can have at there least a gesture. Go. Okay. <laughs> anyway and there's actually going to be some gameplay changes to the game for the first time, which is interesting. You're going to have three actions a turn rather than two. I don't know whether they're going to be changing other things, who's to say, but it looks delightful
1: and I am looking forward to giving it a try. That's Pixel Tactics Digital. And That is the news and why it does not matter. Now on to our feature game, which is Whale Riders by Reiner Canizia. Mark, can you go extensively through Reiner Knizzi's history and all the games that he published, please? No, oh. I, I, I can't. His
0: output in the late 90s alone, I think, puts him head and shoulders above anyone else working in the industry today. What I'm going to do is I'm not going to give you a, a full rundown of his greatest hits, because we've done that a number of times before, but I'm just going to talk about his gateway games from the past five years. That's what I'm going to limit myself to and talk you about in terms of his... Uh, Uh, So in 2017, he released his first deck builder called The Quest for El Dorado, which is the sort of race deck buildery thing. Highly recommended, great gateway game. Lost Cities Rivals in 2018, which was his riff on combining Lost Cities with kind of sort of an auction element from Raw. Interesting sort of combination. I've had some success showing that to people. Lost Cities is also a great gateway game by itself. But Lost Cities Rivals is a multiplayer game with a a very simple auction mechanism that uh, I've had a great deal of success with. Blue Lagoon in 2018 was a tile layer. He's Obviously the master of auctions and tiling, but Blue Lagoon is a marvelously accessible design, held back only by scoring being a little bit fiddly. Not for gamers, but for, for entry gamers. Sumatra is a game released in 2020, we've talked about that before, and it's a set collection game where there's this notion of trying to keep up with the pack. You can try to forge ahead, to get first crack at the next lot of tiles, or you can stay with everybody else and picking, pick over the bones of what's there currently. And so it was a lot about timing. And it's in that context that we would like to talk about Whale Riders, released this year by Grail Games, very much because it is a lighter, more accessible, I would argue, perfect gateway game, and also because it bears some similarities, especially with the work of Sumatra. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Whale Riders?
1: So much like you said, you're you're sort of controlling, either you're controlling the tempo or you're trying to catch up. And like you said, it's much about this uh, moving ahead, trying to get the best selection. And then not only that, if you are left behind, there is one of these little push your luck elements. It's like, I can stay here. I can be left behind a little bit, but you know, these, these tiles keep coming out great. I'm going to just keep cycling through these until it becomes unplayable and then try to catch up later. And this is what you're doing while you're trying to, uh, you know, fill out these contracts and and race ahead and and hope that some of the markets will still be available on your way home.
0: Can I make a professional confession to you, Walker? You sure can. And this is the fourth and, I think, final instance of Mark is a Blithering Idiot, um, today's episode. I don't like reviewing Knizia games because I feel ill-equipped to talk about them because I sincerely believe his work is so good, I'm not really in a position to criticize him very much, especially when it comes to his simpler games his more complicated games, his more in-depth games like your Tigers and Euphrates like other games like that, yeah there are bits that you can pull apart and talk about and say well this doesn't work as well as this other thing, this is a bit clumsy or or perhaps not as clean as the other bits when it comes to his incredibly clean incredibly simple, incredibly accessible games that are of this quality like Whale Riders I don't feel like I have a whole heck of a lot to say other than it's really good and you should play it (laughs) I, I will say some things. It's true, but he does, it's intimidating. He does
1: not jump too far from the mold. It's the typical Reiner Knizia two actions, and that's what makes uh, teaching this game so easy. There's two actions, and there your list of actions that aren't that great. You know, you're, aren't that long? Aren't that long? You're either you know uh, grabbing some money, which means you're losing the game, or you're grabbing the, some tiles. Not necessarily. I, know, I, just I, know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Or you're grabbing some tiles, or you're moving along this track. And, and the rule book is two pages, and it's super quick to teach. So a lot of it is about
0: tempo. We talked about tempo before, and it's ex- there's this element of push-your-luck, which, again, is very, very characteristic of Knizia's work. In the bag of tiles from which you're buying from a market, there are these storms. Storms cannot be purchased, and they gum up the market. And as a result, it makes everything in a given market more expensive. Now... That provides some of the impetus to push ahead, because if you get to the early markets soonest, if you get to a new market before anybody else, that means you have a couple of turns to buy things and not worry about things being snaked out from under you. But you're spending all these actions to travel, and when you're traveling, you're not making money, you're not getting points. On the other hand, if you stay behind, you're risking what the output of the bag is going to be, and you're also accepting the fact that probably by the time you get to the later markets, they might have been picked clean for you instead. And it is this pressure, this de- this delicate balance of knowing when to travel and knowing when you want to stay behind, that I really is so incredibly simple and obvious the moment markets start to they don't bust all at once, but as they gradually accumulate storms, even on your first play, even new gamers are like, wait a minute, I can't just sit here and buy tiles the entire time, I have to move, but then when they move too much, it doesn't work in their favor either. And it's really, again, it's so simple, but it's so much more accessible than what happens again in Sumatra. To my mind, Sumatra and Whale Riders are very, very similar in a lot of ways. Where in Sumatra, there's only the possibility of being one step ahead of the other players. That's as far as you're going to go. And then everyone else is forced to catch up. So you're all mostly on the same page. This, in a strange way doesn't increase player interaction it rather reduces the, the decision space in a way that feels somewhat frustrating and so i really feel that this this tension of tempo of managing location of deciding when to travel is really one of the key agonies for me when playing whale riders
1: it definitely is the hook of this game and i'd be very interested to watch like a, an entirely different group of people play this like watching an introductory group of players play this and i think it would, they would do it much slower like our games you know rocket through where someone's like forging really far ahead and and pushing the end of the game and and the game's done in 20 minutes whereas I think with beginner gamers they'd march along at a much slower pace and 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 key more off of, of completing a lot of contracts as opposed to pushing that end game. I don't know because I'm not saying it's definite, but I'd, I'd be interested to see if there was a huge difference because that's what, I, like, I'm trying to say. It's this variable tempo. The game, the tile bag could come up fine. Like, there's these storms that are mixed into the bag every game, and and so you're you're replenishing the market, and the storms are going to gum up every market, and either they're going to become useless or or you know you can keep hitting that thing and. and I think it's just a really interesting part of the game. But it's not just your attitude
0: towards risk. It's also what you seek to acquire because most of the scoring in the game is going to be coming from satisfying these contracts. And as as people know who have listened to the show before, I'm a big fan of contract mechanisms in Euro games because they can give you some direction and they're also really accessible for new players. Like, this is this is what I'm looking for. If, when in doubt, go for these specific things. But – You have a hand of three different contracts, and they're probably not going to be very compatible. They might pull you in different directions. And what people are going to gravitate towards might differ. For example, say for the sake of argument, in in your starting hand, you've got one contract that says, I don't care what kind of tile it is, I just need three tiles, versus one that is worth a lot of points but requires a specific combination of resources. Different players look at the board and make different decisions. I'm a very conservative player, so I go for the quick, cheap, easy buck. So I might look at a contract and say, three tiles? Okay, I'm going to get three garbage tiles and be done with it. But another player might look at it and say, oh, well, I happen to see in this market very far away, it's got these high-value tiles that can satisfy the more valuable contract. And I think that that kind of of analysis is going to be equally available to new players as well as more experienced gamers. And so they might race ahead for that reason.
1: True. I I felt as though the fact that you didn't have... A maximum number of tiles you could hold. I really wasn't even looking at the contracts that I had. I mm. felt it didn't really matter, right? I would go, th- I would go through markets and just grab the cheapest ones because eventually, because you have no limit on how many resources you can hold, so eventually you're going to get. Because when you take the satisfy contract action, you can satisfy as many as you like. So it's one. of the, It's also got this action efficiency built in as well because you want to satisfy as many contracts as you can, so you're not wasting the action. So I would zoom down the track. Just collect a whole bunch of resources and then you sort of figure out what I need, satisfy those because the new contracts I'm going to draw will probably use those resources that I just grabbed at such a cheap price. Now, there's some virtue to that, obviously, but that
0: puts a a more serious constraint on your cash flow because if you don't satisfy any contract at the beginning, if you just need to accumulate a huge quantity, then other people, while they're doing that – are getting the money turnover from contract satisfaction and might possibly, in some cases, leave you in the dust. It's worth mentioning that there's also goals. There are first two goals that I, that I highly recommend. They're presented as a variant. But again, in in the overall scheme of things, it's another thing to go for, another uh, a, a possibility for guidance. And I found them; they added an interesting nuance to the game in terms of the tempo.
1: Yeah, I was going over the goals. There's two variants you can do. There's a a goal one that you just talked about, and then there was a player power or whale magic that you can go to as well. Yes. I, I sort of looked at the at the at the goal tiles right at the end here, and you're going to pick four every game, and there's six total that you can choose from. Four of them have to do with completing contracts. And so there's a chance that there's a good chance that those four are going to be in the game or a majority of them. And you can almost satisfy all of them at once. Like one of them is, look, I have eight or more tiles, right? And then now that I have those eight tiles, I can probably complete three contracts. And now that I've completed three contracts, I'll probably have eight or more pearls. Now with those other goals I just satisfied, plus the contracts, I now have eight or more coins. Now I've just taken all of those goal cards in one turn by myself. It's true, but it provides
0: at least some of them in some combination, not the one that rewards eight tiles, but it does provide some degree of timing consideration as a counterweight to your argument that you should just accumulate a whole bunch of tiles and not shoot for contracts. I actually liked the fact that it gave some sort of incentive for early completion and early turnover
1: of contracts above and beyond the sheer economic one. True, but some of them were interesting, like having the, the triple tiles or or getting to the end. Yes. It's just every harbor had its own symbol, and there's all sorts of other things. I thought there was other things they could have come up with other than, you know I mean, having it.
0: It's true. I would, I would have liked it if there had been more goals introduced, and it does seem like there would have been opportunities for that.
1: Now next, let's talk about the, the whale magic. This is another variant, and it seemed to be the only fix to sort of like the first player because there's no benefit. There's no balance for who gets to go first, and who gets to go first I feel is a little bit of advantage because not only do you get to the markets first, but you're sort of setting the tempo of the game. You're out ahead of everyone else. You're sort of, and there's no balance there whatsoever. And now there's this variant where you get to pick well powers and you get to pick last if you're the first player. So that's the balance, but it's a variant. So you're not always going to use them.
0: Okay, so first of all, with respect to first-player advantage, I will point out that this has on occasion been some of the shortcomings of Knit games. Again, Tigers and Euphrates being the classic example. Start player has an advantage and in highly competitive play will win most games of Tigers and Euphrates without some sort of house rule. But in the context of Well Raiders, I think that it actually might shake out to be okay for the following two reasons. Number one, the way the board is seated at the start of the game, you know that the early markets have substandard tiles on average. And so, if the first player or players go and buy some of those early tiles, hopefully, better tiles will come out of the bag for the people who show up later, at least in those first few turns. And then, of course, that that will disappear and eventually all the markets will be equivalent. Also... If you do a full circuit of the game, you go to the last market and then you head back because you turn around when you reach the end, you then get to a place where you're just buying straight points. You can buy points throughout the game. There are tiles that give you straight points that come out randomly through the bag. But once the, once you've reached, quote unquote, the end of your circuit, all you do is buy points. If you show up second to that area arguably you have an advantage because then you will get the high-value point tiles at a cheaper price. If somebody shows up at the end of the board and has all the money in the world, that doesn't apply. But in most other instances, it's probably better to get their second or third in a large player count game on, when money is tight.
1: Now, these powers we've talked about together many times, and some of them are quite powerful and some of them are quite useless, and I think they they just don't seem right, Mark. They don't.
0: Uh, I feel I feel bad writing off powers as, as too good or too bad, especially when Knitsy is involved. But, number one, we don't know for a fact that Knitsy designed them. Sometimes developers or publishers put things in after the fact. But, number two, the game doesn't need them, I don't think. And even the ones that seem okay and reasonably balanced, they kind of limit your decision space to a certain extent. Now, regardless of whether or not they're too powerful... They seem to make the game less interesting and that I think is a reason alone to leave them in the box.
1: Agreed. All right. And those are the the special, but like we said, you get to ride whales, Mark. I have this written down just straight up. You get to ride whales.
0: The wooden whales are really kind of cool. We we have a running argument as to which species of porpoise and or marine mammal is which. The only one that's unambiguously obvious is the narwhal for obvious reasons. But past that, we have discussions about whether it's a beluga or whether it's a particular kind of dolphin or what have you. Being entirely ill-equipped for marine biology,
1: I'm not able to contribute much to such conversations, but it is an interesting discussion. Quick, on, on the other components, the child, the tiles are nice and chunky, they go into this really nice bag, uh, like you just said, wooden whales. For the all, Kickstarter version. For the Kickstarter, all-around great components. In, even the inside of the box is all nice and printed. It's a shame that Grail Games
0: is getting out of the Knitzia business, because they've announced that they're not going to be renewing contracts with Knitzia. Some of the reprints that they had been intending to do with Knitzia, they're not going to be doing. It's it's a shame, but if you're going to go out, you might as well go out with something of this quality.
1: The last point I have, I think is just the, you know, coming up to the the end. So you're racing back to the end, there's this big line of pearls that you can buy. So it's got a semi-interesting mechanism where you got sort of make sure you have enough gold. So when you get to the end, you can purchase a bunch of these pearls and when they're all gone, the game will immediately end.
0: And unlike many Charges of Knizia games. Uh, again, Sumatra and Blue Lagoon. Sumatra I don't really like very much, but Blue Lagoon I quite enjoy. Uh, a fair critique is that the scoring elements are a little bit more complicated. Like, this is a set collection. This rewards duplicates of the same. This you want to run of this other thing. This is, well, every time you get a pair, this other thing happens. And... <clears throat> That kind of holds them back from being really accessible, and also makes you feel like you're kind of filling out a spreadsheet to a certain extent. But in Well the scoring is incredibly straightforward. It's just you're collecting pearls. Some contracts are with pearls. Some tiles are with pearls. You're done, and I think that really cinches it. That's one of the that that's the final element that makes this my go-to intro game of the past couple of years. If you want a, a really, really solid, accessible Canizia experience that really can show people, even after the first couple of turns, and they start to realize the trade-offs that are involved immediately, you
1: can't ask for much better than Whale Riders. Yep, and like I said, with uh, only two actions, the turns sail around the table very quickly. Ah, sail. Okay. See what I did there? That was, that was pro-level walker. Was that pro? Oh, yeah, pro. And uh, it scales well. We played it at many different player counts, and because, like I said, because it's only two actions each, it, I think it plays very well at all player counts. I was not
0: surprised that it flowed really well at a high player count. I was shocked at how well it worked with two. That's what surprised me. I was not expecting it to do as well as it did with two players. So at his best, Reiner Knizia designs really accessible games that could be gateway games, that could be your first exposure to to the hobby, but at the same time has enough to appeal to and excite jaded gamers like ourselves and I think that that, that that is precisely the kind of game that Whale Riders is and I'm so pleased to see The Good Doctor continuously produce really solid releases there was a period where it looked like maybe his best years were behind him but I think we can safely put that to bed I highly recommend Whale Riders, Grail Games did a solid production with it, it's a shame we're not going to see more from them but I'm very very glad that they made this production.
1: I'd play it any time, uh, keep it for quite a while
0: Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace!